Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating, and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical, and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm your host, Leanne Ward, and today I am very excited to share with you guys Dr. Will Borsowitz, who is the expert in all things gut health. You may already know him from his popular Instagram account, at the Gut Health MD, but if you don't, make sure you head on over and give him a follow. Now, Dr. B, as he's more famously known, is double board certified in gastroenterology and internal medicine. He works full-time as a gut health doctor in his busy clinic in Charleston, South Carolina in the United States. He's the author of more than 20 peer-reviewed scientific articles and is in the process of authoring a book on gut health and nutrition to be published by Penguin Random House in early 2020. I know you guys are going to love this episode with Dr. B today, and afterwards, we would appreciate so much if you connected with us on social media and shared this episode to your stories to help us spread the word, because trust me guys, this episode with Dr. B is absolutely incredible. So let's jump right in. All right, welcome back everybody to podcast number two on gut health with Dr. B. Dr. B, welcome back. All right, Leanne, so good to be back again with you. Um, It's a great pleasure. I really enjoyed our first conversation about gut health and I'm looking forward to answering some questions from your listeners. So did I. It was fabulous. And for anybody who may not have listened to um, the first podcast, um, let's just recap Dr. B really quickly on the things that we mentioned. So we started talking about gut health and the gut microbiome. We talked about the importance of um, sleep and stress and what that can do to our gut microbiome. Yeah, totally. Uh, So it's actually very clear cut that sleep and stress play a critical role in terms of your gut microbiome that this is low hanging fruit. It's incredibly simple. Just get your eight hours of sleep per night, ideally going to bed at a reasonable time fairly early in the evening. And um, that it's important to make time for yourself, um, uh, for mindfulness, and even for social connection, human connection, because all of these things definitely can leave an impact on the health of your gut microbiome. And then we touched on uh, intolerances, I guess, from a food perspective and what people can do. We, we discussed the low FODMAP diet a little bit as well. And then we really discussed probably the biggest take-home message that I hope a lot of the listeners got was eating plant foods in abundance because the short-chain fatty acids, they're what feed um, our good um, gut bacteria, basically. Yeah, we, know the, we know from the largest study done to date, which is called the American Gut Project, but the American Gut Project is truly an international project with more than 40 countries countries involved in 11,000 participants from around the world. I mean, this is really the most powerful study to date to look at the connection between the microbiome and our lifestyle. And we know from that study that there was a clear cut number one, most powerful predictor of a healthy gut microbiome. And that was the diversity of plants in your diet. And so we know that what we want is to maximize diversity of plants in our diet. And what is the opposite of maximizing diversity? The opposite is restriction. And when we restrict the plants in our diet, particularly when we eliminate broadly like entire categories, 
then we put our gut at risk because we are going to cause damage to the microbiome. And while that may bring temporary improvement in our symptoms on the order of weeks, you are going to, over the course of months, cause harm to the microbiome. And ultimately, what you'll find is that you're in a worse place than where you started. So for anybody who may not have listened to that episode, please, um, I do recommend listening to that one first as a really great introduction to just the field of gut health in general and some really topical things that we discussed. Today, we've got um, some great listener questions that people have sent in for Dr. B to answer. But I think first up, Dr. B, if it's all right with you, I'd love to touch on the subject of gut health and obesity or even just gut health and weight loss in general, because I think that there's a lot of great research out there surrounding obesity and gut health. Yeah, I think that, you know, the part that I come to you is is I think that we all know that person who has tried, 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 done everything to try to lose weight and struggles with that process. You know, and the, and the flip side is we all know that person that, you know, um, I don't want to say it, but maybe we're a little bit jealous. Maybe we kind of don't like them for this, but they can eat whatever they want and they can literally eat whatever they want and not gain weight. And you know, what's the explanation for that? And we used to kind of say, oh, well, it's genetics. Like you, you have good genetics or you don't have good genetics. And what's interesting is that we have realized in, in the last um, several years that the gut definitely is a part of this story. And it goes back to a study that was done around 2006, which is a long time ago by gut microbiome research standards. So this was a really revolutionary study when it came out. But basically in an animal model, what they showed is that you could take the gut microbiome, meaning literally the poop, from an obese mouse. And if you take that microbiome from an obese mouse and you transfer it into a regular mouse that um, does not have, it, it's basically sterile. The, the, the mouse is raised what we call germ-free. So the, that mouse does not have a microbiome yet. If you transfer the microbiome, the poop, from the obese mouse into this germ-free mouse, and you change literally nothing, this is laboratory conditions, you give that germ-free mouse the exact same food that it was getting before, you will find that the germ-free mouse will become obese. And it's literally eating the same number of calories, the exact same food, in the exact same amount. It's crazy. And they've since done other studies. Uh, I'll give you an example. This one is almost as mind-blowing. They took twins, okay, identical twins. Um, so these are obviously genetically the same from a human DNA perspective. But they found identical twins that were discordant in terms of their body habitus. So one would be an obese twin and the other one would be a skinny twin. And what they did is they took the human stool, the human stool from these twins, and they would transfer it into these germ-free mice. And when you take the human stool from an obese person and you transfer it into a germ-free mouse, that germ-free mouse will become obese. And the opposite is true. If you take this, the lean adult human and you transfer their stool into a germ-free mouse, that germ-free mouse will remain skinny or will become skinny. So it shows you the power of the microbiome in terms of influencing um, our interactions with our with our food. 
And that there are examples of people who could eat literally the exact same food and get two totally different effects. And the reason for the difference in the effects appears to be dominated by the microbiome and those differences that we have. So fascinating. So, I mean, I guess genetics does, it does have a a small play, would you say, but it really does come down to our our gut microbiome because, you know, as you said, those people who have crappy diets, they can eat whatever they want and they'll never gain any weight. Whereas a lot of people, perhaps larger body people do eat really well and they do exercise you know, quite regularly, um, but they they really struggle to shift the kilo. So sometimes it's not just about, it just doesn't come down to calories in versus calories out. It does come down to a little bit of our genetics, a little bit of our environment and our, our gut microbiome as well. Would you say that's an accurate statement? Yeah, I would. And but the But the key here is that that person who can eat whatever they want right now, um, they shouldn't continue to do that. Because we learned from the first episode, in case um, you haven't had a chance to give it a listen yet, we learned from the first episode that the dietary choices that you make have a profound influence on the makeup of your gut microbiome. That if you change your diet, that literally within 24 hours, there will already be changes in your microbiome reflecting the dietary changes. And so if you eat junk um, all day long and you're skinny, that's okay. That's great. I'm glad that you're skinny, but at some point that's going to catch up with you. And because you're causing damage to your microbiome. And so the flip side of that is the person who has a damaged microbiome and makes dietary changes and is able to lose weight as a result of those dietary changes. And I'm just going to speak for myself anecdotally. So when I was 30, I'm closer to 40 now, When I was 30, I was the chief medical resident at Northwestern in Chicago. And for those of you in Australia, this Chicago right there in the middle of the United States um, and known for its steakhouses. I don't eat this way anymore. But when I was chief medical resident at Northwestern, my job was to take the big wigs out for a steak dinner. And I was doing this like twice a week. And so this diet, I'm not just blaming the steak, by the way, it's the global diet. I was not eating well, a lot of processed food, a lot of junk food, um, and a lot of heavy, heavy, very high fat food. And I got up to about 235 pounds. And I was around this time, I was single and I was dating and like any normal single guy, I would do anything to try to get in good shape, to try to impress the girls. And so I was working out like an animal because I was, again, I was single. I did not have any children. And so even though I was working hard, I had enough time in my life that I could go to the gym. And so I would work out for 45 minutes to an hour. I'm not exaggerating five or six times a week. And then I would jump on the treadmill and run either a 5k or a 10k, or I would jump in the pool if it was the summertime and I would swim between 50 and hundred laps. So I would do all of that. So that's like, you know, an hour and a half of exercise um, multiple times per week. But, and, I, and by the way, I was a celebrated medical doctor. Okay. So I'm, I am a doctor. I was the chief medical resident at Northwestern. I won the highest award in my residency program. You know, I had this great reputation, but I knew nothing about food. I knew nothing. I had not connected this dot at all. It is not a part of conventional Western medicine. And so I'm eating really poorly and I weighed 235 pounds. So a little over a hundred kilograms, like a hundred and, um, 
110 kilograms roughly. And then I met my wife and I saw the way that she ate, which was in abundance. She would eat as much as she wanted to, but there was a difference in the quality of the food that she ate. She ate a lot more plants, a lot more fruits, vegetables, whole grain seeds, and nuts. And I saw it and I was like, gosh, this is like, how does she do this? And she doesn't gain any weight. She looks amazing. She still looks amazing. And so I started to secretly make changes myself. I, um, where I started was as simple as just replacing an unhealthy dinner, like a hot dog with a smoothie. And the smoothie does not have to be complicated. Literally all I was doing was some bananas, some greens and some berries. That's it. Blend it up. And so I started with that and I did one step at a time. I changed my diet over the course of years and I became progressively more plant-based. And in that process, I dropped down by more than 20. I'm sorry. Let me do my math here. I, I dropped down by more than 10 kilograms. Okay. About 14 kilograms just by making these dietary changes. And I got to a place where I was pescatarian. Um, still doing a lot of dairy, a lot of eggs, and still some fat, some some fast food. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to go all the way. And I became much more focused on being good about plant about eating plant foods. And really, what I mean by this more than anything is just making the choice to eat real food. And um, when I did that, I lost another seven kilograms. So I lost over twenty kilograms total. And I got back to my college weight. This is the way that I weighed. This is what I weighed when I was in college, all the way back when I was a kid. And here I am more than 20 years later, back to my college weight. Now, I was not working out because at this point in my life, I have children. There, I have little kids. My, my daughter's five. My son is two. And I'm very focused on my family. So I, I felt like I didn't really have time for exercise. So I got down, dropped my weight by 20 kilograms. Then in the fall this past year, 2018, I said, you know what? I'm going to get back in the gym, but I'm just going to do it in a very limited basis. So I hired a trainer and I go for 60 to 90 minutes per week total. That's it. 60 to 90 minutes per week total. And I feel like I'm in the best shape of my life. And I'm almost 40 and I I could show you the pictures from when I was 30 and I was working out like a wild man. And I look way younger now than I did back then. And so I, so I guess my point with all of this is what I'm saying is that the science is showing us that a person who has obesity has damage to the gut microbiome. And that damage can come from their lifestyle, many different places, whether it be their dietary choices, too much processed food, excessive amounts of saturated fat and animal products. Um, not enough exercise, not sleeping well, not taking time to de-stress and meditate, not taking time with friends, not spending time outside, all of these different little things that may seem small, but they all add up. So the damage can come from that place, but you can reverse it. That's my point. You can reverse it. You're not, you're not stuck with this, that your body will adapt to the choices that you make. And when you make these lifestyle changes, when you change your diet in the way that I did, you will see the weight melt off of you. 
And it's a powerful, powerful thing. And then that just reinforces you feel so good. You don't ever want to go back. And that's kind of what's happened with me is I don't ever want to go back to that place where I was just constantly fatigued, constantly having food hangovers and not really feeling good about myself, feeling kind of depressed and anxious. And now I'm in this place where I'm working honestly harder than I've ever worked before. And I'm completely capable of handling it because of the way that I eat, because of my lifestyle, because of my food, my exercise. And it's made me actually better. My, my job performance has improved in addition to everything else. And that's incredible, isn't it? And I think the biggest thing is that our health can, in a lot of cases, be reversible. Um, and nutrition, it's so key. Like I think a lot of people just, they want that quick fix, but when it comes to a, a lifestyle, it's really, it's so important to do it slowly and to to really just change small parts and small parts and small parts over time than rather trying to be too strict and too gung-ho. It lasts a couple of weeks and you fall off the wagon. So as you said, like you you did it in this progression where you just started eating a few more plants. And so for anybody listening at home, if it seems really overwhelming, and we've mentioned quite a few things like sleep and stress and lifestyle and diet and exercise even, if you're overwhelmed and you don't know where to start, just start by eating a few more plants. You don't have to go completely plant-based. You don't have to cut anything out of your diet. Just start by eating a few more plants. And the more color, the better. You know, it's not just that greens are the best things for us. All plants in abundance and the diversity of plants is what's going to make the biggest difference to your gut health and to your health overall, long-term. Would you agree, Dr. B? I agree 100%. And that's that, and that's exactly the place that I came from. And that's why I... I um, really believe in having a philosophy of progress and not perfection, because that's what worked for me. And, you know, for me also, it was a mindset. It was, gosh, this is working and I feel great. And I've decided that I'm going to reward my body by consuming the food that makes me feel better. And so when I sit down and each one of us, three times a day, we sit down, we have a meal and we have choices and for me, what, what really helped me in this, in this journey was to acknowledge that it's not about perfection, but it's about rewarding your body with the food that makes you feel well, that brings health because you deserve that, honestly. And so that's, that's what really worked well for me. But I agree with you, Leanne, that simple, small changes start with one thing. And that's what it was for me, smoothie. Start with making a smoothie. It's so simple. You can throw whatever you want in there. I, you could easily build a smoothie with more than 10 different plants in it. And that is going to taste, make it taste really good. There's nothing wrong with making a smoothie that tastes great because guess what? The fiber is all in there. So you can buzz it up. The fiber is still in there and it's still good for you. So Wonderful. Um, so that I guess that brings me to my next thing is we can do all of the right things and we can we can try our best to have a great diverse gut microbiome, but something as simple as taking a course of antibiotics could really knock out a lot of our good bacteria. Can you, I guess, talk to our listeners a little bit more about antibiotics? In Australia, I feel like a lot of people almost take antibiotics as a bit of a, a preventative, I guess. Like sometimes they're very useful and for certain conditions, they can be life-saving, but in a lot of cases, Sometimes we sort of just take them just in case. Um, I'm not sure if, you, you know, there's a bit of an over um, prescription of antibiotics in Australia, I believe. Oh, there's the 100%. And there is in the United States too. It's a huge issue. Um, the order, overutilization of antibiotics. And, you know, I think historical context is very relevant to this conversation. 
which is to say that if you go back a little a little bit more than 100 years ago, go back to the turn of the 20th century, okay? So we're just getting into around 1900. And look at the top 10 causes of death um, at that period of time. And what you're going to find is that like what's killing people right now, heart disease is number one in, in our countries. Heart disease is number one. Cancer is number two. You, in, in most places, COPD is number three. If you look at those things, they were there. They were there in the top 10 list. Those were not the top killers. The top killers at the turn of the 20th century, not that long ago, just a little more than 100 years ago, number one, number one was pneumonia. Number two was tuberculosis. Number three was gastrointestinal bug, gastrointestinal bacteria or virus. So those are the top causes of death at that period of time. And we needed a way to save people from these top causes of death. If you look through the course of human history, we have always been good as humans at identifying where our problems lie and innovating solutions, no matter what. That's what we've always done. And so that's what we did. We, we started to innovate solutions. We put chlorine into our water and we started to clean up our food supply. We've created ways to preserve our food, to protect it. And then right around the time of World War II, we have the discovery of penicillin and penicillin is prepared for commercial use. And boom, all of a sudden you see human life expectancy jumping dramatically, jumping to places that it's never been before. You know, and now we're in a position where the average person is living to an unprecedented age, pushing 80 years on average for most countries. Like in the United States, it's 78. I think it's a little bit more for Australia, but it's right around there, somewhere between 78 and 80. And so people are living much, much longer lives than they used to live. And the reason why is because we're winning the war on infections. So now what we have is the emergence of chronic disease. And in this process, when you have something that's as effective as an antibiotic, you start to lean on it and you don't really necessarily have a regard for the long-term consequences. You're just thinking about the short-term action. What is the benefit? So if you're a doctor and you are pressed for time and the patient walks through your door and says, I want an antibiotic because there's the wide perception that antibiotics are good for us. And you look and that patient, that person has a sore throat. If there's not evidence for strep throat that requires an antibiotic, you should not be prescribing the antibiotic because that's a virus. But we have prescriptions like that that occur all the time. And when they study, when they study these prescriptions for antibiotics, what they end up finding is that more than 50% of them are dubious, unnecessary. And that's that's a huge problem. And the reason why is because an antibiotic is designed to destroy bacteria. What is the densest population of bacteria literally on the entire planet? The densest population of bacteria on the entire planet is living inside of you. It's living inside of you. It's in your colon. It's in your large intestine. You will find more microbes there. One drop of fluid from your colon has more microbes than there are people in the entire UK. One drop. So. So if you drop an antibiotic that is designed to destroy bacteria into this community, this dense population, you can say that I'm trying to take out the bad guys. You will get some of those bad guys. Guess what else you're going to get? A lot of the good guys. This is not laser precision. This is not surgical precision. 
This is napalm. You're dropping a bomb in there and you're hoping that you take out more bad guys than good guys. And what we see is severe um, damage to the gut microbiome that occurs with even a short course of antibiotics. Let me give you an example. Cipro, ciprofloxacin, which is an antibiotic used very, very frequently to treat GI illness or also to treat urinary tract infections, oftentimes prescribed for 10 or 14 days. Ciprofloxacin in just five days will wipe out 30% of the microbes in your gut. Now, this has major implications for the future because what you've just done is you've selected for the 70% of microbes that are Cipro resistant. So you are giving them an advantage and they start to grow and multiply and there's now more of them. And now going forward, you will have a much, much more dominant influence from these antibiotic resistant bacteria. And if you look out over the future, there can be recovery of the gut microbiome. There's no question about that. The, gut, the microbiome will recover. But the issue is that if you look literally years later, you will still see evidence of the fact that this person took antibiotics. So what about the person who takes antibiotics multiple times per year? What about the person who's on minocycline for acne and they're on that chronically and they're taking an antibiotic every single day for months on end? What happens to these people? This is, this is where, and I, I see this in my clinic all the time. I've started to ask, did you have a lot of ear infections when you were a kid? Have you been exposed to antibiotics? Have you had chronic urinary tract infections? Did you ever treat cystic acne with antibiotics? And what I find is a huge percentage of my patients, the answer is yes. And so these antibiotics, we need to be very, very cautious with them. And one other population that I, I want to throw out there, because I think it's really, really important, is in our kids. Our children, we did not talk about this in the first episode, but when a child is born at the time of birth, their microbiome is almost sterile. They, they go from literally almost nothing in there. And, you know, it's kind of interesting if you think about it, if you take a step back and you think about a baby's diaper, um, in the first, any parent out there is going to know what I'm talking about. In the first few weeks after a baby is born, the, the poop, it's like it's unprocessed. It's, it's, it's just sour milk. And then after a couple of weeks, it starts to change and become much more like human stool. And the reason why is because when the baby is first born, they don't have the microbiome to really process it. But over the weeks, they are forming a microbiome. And that's what allows them to start to process that process mom's milk. And so what's fascinating is that there's this period of tremendous growth where a child goes from no microbiome at birth to by the time that they are two to three years of age, they have a fully formed adult size microbiome. They have the whole thing. It's all there. And if during that time you disrupt that development, whether it be with antibiotics or with bottle feeding instead of breastfeeding, or with cesarean section instead of vaginal delivery, each of these things, in a fascinating way, lead to the same endpoint, which is increased risk of obesity, increased risk of allergic diseases like asthma or eczema or allergic rhinitis, um, increased risk of autoimmune disease like celiac disease and type 1 diabetes. 
So this period of time and development of the microbiome becomes absolutely critical. And one of the ways that you can really, really disrupt it is with antibiotics. And, and one thing I just want to throw out there real quick before we move on. If you're freaking out at home because your kid was born by cesarean section or because they took antibiotics, it's okay. It's okay. Um, you, your kid can 100% be normal and great and absolutely lovely. And both of my children, just to reassure you, we did not want it this way, but it turned out this way. Both of my children were born by cesarean section and my kids are doing great. But I am very proud of the fact that between my, my kids, the two of them, um, it's almost eight years of life between my two children. My daughter's five. My son is almost three. And they have never been exposed to antibiotics. And I feel really good about that. And I feel like part of the reason why we've been able to get away with this and they've never had an ear infection is the right diet and that my wife breastfed them for an extended period of time, basically until they were two and all these other things that we're doing to support their gut. Wonderful. And I mean, some of these situations are unavoidable. Sometimes, you know, emergency C-sections, sometimes women physically just can't breastfeed. So it's not right. to say that um, these things will be harmful. That, as you, as you mentioned, there are still ways to come back from this and still a great number of ways we can increase their gut diversity. But for some people, um, you know, antibiotics are sometimes unavoidable. Do you ever, if you need to prescribe antibiotics to some of your patients, do you ever um, prescribe probiotics with them at the same time? Or do you think about, um, is, is there much evidence in terms of um, types and strains and that sort of things of probiotics? For antibiotic use, this is a this is a fascinating and dynamically changing topic, and uh, and I will tell you firsthand that I've had to change my own practice, um, and there are a lot of doctors who still need to change their practice based upon some of the emerging studies. So this is this is a little bit of a tough one, but I'm going to tell you um, what what we know right now. Um, it's completely intuitive that if you give someone an antibiotic that you would try to restore their microbiome with a probiotic, it's completely intuitive. And that's exactly the way that I took care of my patients. But the problem is that there was a study that came out in September of 2018, um, out of a group in Israel. Um, I believe it was, it was published in the journal cell. And in this study, they did a very, very deep dive on probiotics. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but there were a bunch of headlines. I pay attention to these headlines. There were a bunch of headlines that came out around September of 2018 saying probiotics don't do anything. That's what all the headlines were saying. They said probiotics don't do anything. Now, we can talk about that in more detail. I don't agree with that statement. And I think that that was hyperbolic by the mainstream media to get a lot of attention. But in this study that was done, there was one very, very important finding which is that they gave antibiotics and they really monitored closely the gut flora of these people that they gave the antibiotic to. And they looked at what happened if you allowed the gut to restore itself naturally without any probiotic or what happens if you give the probiotic. And what they found is that if you allow the gut to restore naturally within about 30 days, it just kind of gets back to what it's doing. If you give a probiotic, it actually slows down the recovery process and it takes much closer to about six months. And the idea is this based upon this study. The idea is that if you knock down the microbes and kind of wipe them out, you are creating um, opportunity for new microbes to move in and kind of take up residence. 
And so if you then chase that with a probiotic, then what you're doing is you're taking an outside source of bacteria, which is not innate to this human being. It's not part of their normal microbiome. And you're taking this outside source and you're putting it into a position where it can actually stick around and linger and take up, almost take up residence. And what it does is it suppresses the other bacteria that are a normal part of the digestive system from being able to then get back to what they were doing before. So that's the idea. The concern is that probiotics may slow down our ability to recover after an antibiotic. So where I currently stand um, right now, and I, I'm, I'm looking forward to even more studies on this topic, I have to tell you that I think there's a lot for us to learn still. So it's a little tough because we, we want to have these conversations and talk like we know everything, but we don't know everything yet. There's a lot for us to learn. Um, I, where I currently stand is that we have data that show us that a plant-based diet is no surprise, protective that the person who consumes a plant-based diet has less damage to their gut microbiome and a faster recovery of the gut microbiome. So I love it when a person is already eating plant-based at the time that they need their antibiotic. The other thing that I believe in is a prebiotic. So we talked a little bit in the first episode about prebiotic fiber supplements. And this is one of the places where I think they can be beneficial because what you're doing is basically you're just helping to support your innate bacteria and have them recover much more quickly. So that's what I believe in, in terms of recovery from antibiotic at this particular point. Not to confuse people, but there, there's some parts of this that are confusing. We, we do have studies that show us that a probiotic prevents the onset of an infection called C. diff. Clostridium difficile, C. diff, is an infectious bacteria that can cause colitis, which means inflammation of the colon. And it tends to show up after we treat people with antibiotics. And so, and we know that probiotics can protect us from developing C. diff. So that's the part that's confusing and we're trying to figure out. Are there some people that should be on a probiotic after antibiotics? Probably, um, particularly the ones who have a history of prior C. diff infection because we want to protect them. But should most of us be taking probiotics after antibiotics? Again, this is a moving target. A lot of doctors don't even realize this yet, but based upon this study from last year, last September, I am no longer using probiotics after antibiotics. Yeah. So diet is key. It comes back to that original message. The best thing you can do for your gut health is eat a diversity of plant-based foods. 100%. Wow. All right, Dr. B, I'd love to get into some of our listener questions. I could, I probably have a hundred more questions I'd love to ask you myself, but I won't be so selfish. And I'd love to start with a question from our first listener, Vicky. So Vicky would like to know, um, she's been reading about the research with gut health and anxiety, and she would like to know your opinion on this. And if you feel like the research is accurate surrounding gut health and anxiety. Uh, thank you for that question, Vicky. And um, definitely make sure you go back and you listen to the first episode that we did together, because we did start to take a dive into the brain gut connection. And the answer to your question is 100%. There is, no, there is no doubt that the gut is connected to anxiety. And what we find is that 90% of serotonin is produced in the gut, precursors to serotonin produced in the gut, 50% of dopamine produced in the gut, 30 neurotransmitters. There's over 30 neurotransmitters produced in the gut. And they all also have the ability to communicate back to the brain through the vagus nerve. And we have ways where we can manipulate and reduce anxiety levels through the use of probiotics. We have ways that we can manipulate and reduce depression scores through the use of probiotics. So 
at this point in 2019, it's not debatable whether or not the gut is related to mood, to anxiety, to depression, and even to other neurologic conditions that may surprise you, like ADHD, attention deficit disorder, as well as Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, um, even, even schizophrenia, autism. All of these different conditions have been associated back to our gut microbiome. And the bottom line is that for all of us, no matter who you are, we all benefit from paying attention to our gut microbiome and taking, taking care of it. Wow, great. Um, and so the second listener question is from Suzanne. And I think we probably touched on this a, a little bit already. Uh, Suzanne wanted to know whether taking probiotics can actually strengthen your gut health. I do think that there's a role for probiotics. Um, I just think that the issue... My issue with probiotics, it's not that I think that they're bad. It's that the hype is outpacing the science. So, you know, it's it's one thing for a company to develop a probiotic and then to market that probiotic to you and to convince you that this is the solution to gut health, because then they can get you to go and spend $50 per month. And it it costs them, you know, I mean, a fraction of that to make that product. So is there a place for probiotics? Yes. But let me explain. Can, let me take a little bit of a deeper dive into probiotics here. And we didn't do this in the first episode. And I think this is kind of important. I want people to understand the way that this works. You, you have a gut microbiome that is made up of five different types of organisms. Okay. And those are bacteria, yeast, or another word would be fungi. Archaea, which are my personal favorites. I'm going to come back to those in a moment. Potentially parasites. Not all of us, but some of us do have parasites. And in many cases, living in harmony within our gut. And finally, viruses, which aren't necessarily living microorganisms, but they do play a role and they can have an effect on your gut health. Um, believe it or not, you have more viruses than anything else. That's the shocking part. There are viruses everywhere. Um, and there are 10 times more viruses, if not more than that, than there are microbes living inside of you. But if you look at these other four communities, these microbes, you have about 39 trillion microorganisms living inside of you. Now, this is a multiple, at least 10 times more than there are stars in the Milky Way. Take all the stars in the Milky Way, bundle them up, multiply it by 10, and that's how many microorganisms you have living inside of you. That compared to the number of cells that you have within your body, it depends on what number you want to use for what counts as a cell. If you want to count red blood cells and platelets and human cells, the cells that have a nucleus, then it's about, it, it's about four microbes for every three human cells. So there are more microbes than there are human cells within your own body. You are more than 50% microbial. But if you look, if you eliminate the stuff that doesn't have a nucleus, I mean, that's not to me a real cell, like a red blood cell is just a bag for hemoglobin. If you eliminate the red blood cells and you eliminate the platelets, you have more than 10 times more microbes than there are human cells within the body, which would make you 10% human, which is a daunting thing to imagine every single cell with a nucleus surrounded by 10 of these microbes. And they're not there to kill you. They're actually there. They've always been a part of human evolution. Every, there's never been a moment where the human being has been sterile. 
They've always been a part of human life. And we evolved together. All three million years of human evolution, we we went through that together. And so um, these microorganisms are there and they're powerful. Um, and the archaea are these, uh, I just want to come back to them real quick. They're a single cellular organism that have been on this planet for 4 billion years. And um, you'll find them in a volcano. You'll find them in the bottom of the ocean on the rift vents, and you will find them inside your colon. So there is, there is this harmony or balance that exists within um, your body and absolutely critical to human health, um, including all of these different things that we talk about, our immune system and our mood. And I have to admit something, which is that I completely forgot the question. <laughs> <laughs> Will you remind me real quick I think what the we were, question was? Yeah, of course. We were talking about probiotics um, in terms of strengthening your gut. And you oh. were sort of just giving us a little bit of a background on probiotics. Yeah. And I think you oh, were okay. getting into how diverse our, our gut microbiome was and how yes. probiotics may be able to influence that. Thank you. So, so the key here with the gut microbiome is that you have this community living inside of you. It's widely diverse. There are 39 trillion of them. You have anywhere from 300 to 1,000 different species. And in this probiotic capsule, you could have one species, you could have five, you may have 15. That's a very small number relative to the breadth of your human gut microbiome. And what you're hoping when you take a probiotic is that this little mix of bacteria that's in this capsule is somehow going to be enough, the right species in a high enough quantity to actually change the way that your microbiome functions and provide you with a health benefit. So I look forward to the day in the future where we have the ability to analyze your microbiome and identify the strengths and the weaknesses and fill those holes with the right microbe. I have not seen evidence. There are some companies that claim that they can do this, but I have not seen evidence of a company that can actually identify the weaknesses in your microbiome provide something to fill it. And here's the key, show me in a study that it actually provides a health benefit. Not just that you can change the number of microbes that an individual person has. Show me that you can provide them with a health benefit. And if you can do that, then you really do have a powerful probiotic. So the future to me is almost like a compounding pharmacy where we have personalized probiotics that are designed to fill in the problems or the holes in our microbiome. We're not there yet. So right now, what we're doing is we're slinging mud against the wall and we're hoping that something will stick. And that's kind of what it is. It's trial and error. And if you try one probiotic and it doesn't work, it doesn't mean that none of them will work. There may be one that does, but it's trial and error until proven otherwise. Exactly. And I think that um, a lot of questions I get for people is it, you know, is, they say to me, is it better to take a probiotic with just one particular strain and have that really high strength or a diversity of strains such as 15 different strains is what you mentioned. And a lot of the time with probiotics, there isn't a huge amount of research. There isn't particular conditions. You mentioned C. diff, um, ulcerative colitis, another, another condition where there's been some research with different targeted strains of probiotics. But generally, when I think about probiotics, it's really about the particular strain. And as you mentioned, does that have a beneficial effect on our health? And I think a lot of people forget about the true definition of a probiotic, where it needs to have a beneficial effect on our health. Whereas I find a lot of people 
kind of like a multivitamin. They just take it because they think it's going to make them just that little bit healthier. Whereas I sort of say, I'd rather you save your money and spend that on buying, um, you know, different types of fruits and veggies and exploring the more diversity of plants rather than taking something and kind of hoping for the best. Because as you mentioned, we don't have enough real research around probiotics and particularly around targeted strains to affect different types of clinical conditions. Yeah. Are you in agreement with that? Oh, I'm in total agreement. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and you know this again, but for your listeners at home, that there there is limited data and I would not characterize any of it as really, really strong data of the benefit of probiotics. And the reason why is, again, it comes back to every single one of us has a unique microbiome. Your gut microbiome is as unique as a fingerprint. And so when we we take a probiotic, it could be literally the exact same probiotic. We could give it to you, we could give it to me, and it's going to have two totally different effects because it's interacting with our unique gut microbiome. So yes, there's data for irritable bowel syndrome. There's some data for ulcerative colitis at a very, very, with ulcerative colitis, as you know, Leanne, it's given at a very, very, very high dose. It's a, it's a prescription dose, which is very different than what you would get over the counter. To answer your question about, you know, what is the best probiotic? The best probiotic is the one that's been studied for your particular disease state that you're trying to address. That's the best probiotic. But if we are just kind of looking broadly, if we're talking generally about probiotics, yes, more strains is better. More strains is definitely better than one strain. Higher numbers of bacteria is better. I prefer for it to be something that's in a, in a delayed release capsule to get the probiotic, the bacteria beyond the stomach acid and down deliver it to where we need them to go, which is the colon. I prefer for my probiotics to be offered in a package that is, you know, essentially temperature sensitive and, um, uh, like they'll have, some of them will have these blister packs that protect it from humidity. So I like all of those qualities. Those are the types of things that I look for in my probiotic, higher number of bacteria, more strains, um, proper packaging so that it delivers to the colon and that it's protected in, you know, from temperature and from humidity. Um, but at the end of the day, there's a hierarchy and the hierarchy is diet and lifestyle first. That's where the money's at diet and lifestyle first. And then to me, if I'm forced to take a number two, I'm going with prebiotics. I'll, I would rather take prebiotics, which can boost short chain fatty acid levels and which can augment the bacteria that already live inside of you. I'll take that over probiotics. Because prebiotics will help all of us. doesn't matter what your gut microbiome is made of. The prebiotics will help you. And again, the probiotics, as we've sort of been talking about, each one of us will have a unique response. And that's the reason why the studies so far to date have not been as, as, as um, the results have not been as good as we were hoping them to be, to be honest with you. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. And I feel like people, it just comes back to, you know, what we want as humans. We live in this fast paced world. We want everything at the click of our fingers. So why not just take a pill such as a probiotic super quickly and improve our gut health rather than working long term and trying to gradually increase the diversity of plants. So play the slow game, guys. It will pay off long term. Um, there is no magical pill in a bottle. If there was, um, I'm sure Dr. B and I would be the first ones to be marketing it and selling it to you guys, but it just doesn't exist um, at the present time. 
So I guess that brings us into the next listener question from Erica. So she said, hi, Dr. B, what are your thoughts on homemade water kaifer, milk kaifer and um, kombucha for improving gut health? Are they okay to have? And if so, how much? Um, all right. So we're talking about three different fermented foods and it brings us into a conversation about fermented foods a little bit. And I am, I'm a huge fan. I, I love fermented foods, but I will be the first person to admit that the data to support fermented foods is not as strong yet as I would like it to be. And part of the reason why is because we don't have funding sources for good studies to look at this, right? Like you can only do research if you have someone to pay for it. These studies cost not $1,000. If they costed $1,000, it'd be pretty easy to fund them. These are studies that can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars to do. And people need to get grants. And if someone's not going to award them the money to investigate this, then we're never going to be able to study it. Most of the data surrounding fermented foods is looking at dairy. Um, The reason why is because it's funded by the dairy industry. So I think that those studies do need to be interpreted with a grain of salt. It's not that they should be discarded completely and and completely ignored. And I do think when we talk about kefir, which is fermented milk, I do think that without question, kefir to me is the healthiest form of milk or dairy that exists. I honestly believe that. So if you are someone who consumes dairy and, you know, I, I think that's debatable whether or not it makes sense or, you know, from my perspective, if you do, it should be something that should be done in moderation. But of the forms of dairy that exist, kefir is the healthiest. And that's because kefir is made by introducing a specific family of bacteria that consume parts of the dairy, specifically the lactose, the sugar that we were talking about in episode one, which is the FODMAP. The the sugar lactose is consumed by these microbes. They multiply and there can be literally hundreds of species in the kefir. And they do transform the food into a healthier form of dairy. And that's what I love about fermented food is when you think about food processing, it's really the only form of food processing that I'm aware of that actually makes your food healthier than when it started. And that's when we allow our microbes to act in a natural way. Whereas when we try to be unnatural and form our food into whatever we want it to be, we always, we always botch it. We always mess it up and we make it less healthy than when it started. And at some point it stops being healthy and it starts being disease promoting or unhealthy. So that's, that's the problem with processed foods. Now, kefir, I'm sorry, water kefir and kombucha are pretty, pretty similar. They're pretty similar. And in both of these cases, what you're doing is you're using a um, a water liquid and you're introducing bacteria and the bacteria will consume, uh, I'm sorry, I, I said a water liquid, I meant a, a sugar water. You, you, the bacteria will consume the sugar in the water. And that's a part of that process. In the case of kombucha, it's a tea. So you take essentially sweet tea. Um, it's incredibly easy to do this, by the way. I do this myself. And you introduce, uh, you take a sweet tea and you introduce kombucha into the sweet tea, and the kombucha will already have the microbes and the yeasts that you need in order to process that sugar. And they will actually reduce the sugar content dramatically. And in the process, produce new bacteria, new yeasts. It will form something on the surface called a SCOBY. The SCOBY is a very interesting thing because basically what it does is it insulates the liquid and it makes it an anaerobic environment in a way so that the right bacteria can grow and multiply. 
and they will release acids. And these acids, like for example, lactic acid, acetic acid, these acids are what make it taste bitter. And these acids are actually very healthy. So all of these things, when you look at them, kefir, water kefir, kombucha, they all contain bacteria. In many cases, yeast. These bacteria are not necessarily probiotic. It's exactly as you defined it, Leanne, that in order to be probiotic, they have to demonstrate a health benefit. So not all microbes that are alive are probiotic. And they also have these healthy, what I would say, healthy acids. I do think that there is benefit to the consumption of these beverages in moderation. When you overdo it, when you go too far, you can cause damage to your teeth at a minimum and erode the enamel because of the acidity. So I will tell you the way that I approach this. I am more of a kombucha drinker. Um, I don't personally consume dairy, so I don't, I don't consume kefir. Um, I'm, and I just don't, I haven't really ever transitioned into water kefir for, for no real reason other than I just drink kombucha. And I won't have more than about four ounces in a day. And when I do it, I always dilute it with about eight ounces of water. So you still get plenty of flavor. You really, there's no reason to drink it in its pure acidic state other than it's just going to destroy your teeth. And let's not sit here and pretend that kombucha is going to cure all your problems. When you read on the internet that it cures every single malady that exists under the sun, that's ridiculous. That's completely not true. But can it be a healthy part of a diet? Can it it be a healthy swap, right? Because it's always relative. So if you're drinking less water and ramping up your kombucha consumption, that's probably not a healthy swap. I'll be completely honest with you. Drink more water. That's the healthiest beverage that exists. If you are dropping down on your soda consumption, if you're reducing the amount of cola that you drink or you know those types of sugary beverages, and instead you're substituting in a moderate amount of this kombucha because you enjoy the flavor and it replaces this soda, this carbonated drink really well, and you're doing that once a day and then you're drinking a lot of water, well, that to me is a healthy pattern. I think that's very healthy. So that's sort of the approach that I see. So I guess it comes down to there's no really right or wrong way. If it sort of fits into your lifestyle or it makes your lifestyle a little bit healthier, then it's not a bad thing, but it's not the be all to end all. It's not going to cure your gut health or it's not going to make you incrementally healthier or anything like that. A hundred percent. And I, I, I want to add while we're on the topic that to me, the best fermented foods are the fermented plants. You know, you take, for example, sauerkraut and, um, Sauerkraut, when I was a kid, I didn't like it at all. And that's because that was not real sauerkraut. That was cabbage that um, basically they put into a bath of vinegar. And that's like the 20th century industrial version of making sauerkraut, which is take cabbage, throw it in some vinegar and call it sauerkraut. That's not sauerkraut. Real sauerkraut is you take cabbage and it's incredibly easy to do. I'm going to tell your listeners right now. And you literally just chop it up into whatever size piece you like. And be careful not to like hyper clean it. I will always buy organic cabbage and I just peel off the top couple layers of leaves and then I chop it up, but don't like scrub it with any soap because you need the bacteria that are already living on that leaf. Chop it up, pack it into a mason jar, put a salt water brine over the top. It's important that the water not be chlorinated. So it either needs to be distilled water or quite simply, you can just boil water and then let it return to room temperature. 
The salt cannot be iodized. So I personally use sea salt because iodine kills bacteria. But essentially, you just make a brine. You pack some cabbage into a mason jar. You pour brine over the top. You submerge everything. And what blows my mind and I find to be amazing is that the bacteria that you need to produce sauerkraut already live on the sauerkraut. You don't need to inoculate this. You don't need to add any bacteria in. They're already there. And over the course of seven days, it will start to transform your cabbage and it'll stop being salty cabbage and it'll start being sauerkraut. And it's vibrant and it's tangy and it's crunchy and it's absolutely delicious. And I personally am a big believer in eating a little bit of fermented food every day. And what I mean is just like literally a, a small little tablespoon of sauerkraut that you make yourself at home. And you guys are in the winter right now. And it's the perfect time to be doing it because it's the cool season. And when the temperature drops um, to a lower level, that's the ideal time to be doing this. Wonderful. So if any listeners at home want to go and try their own homemade sauerkraut, make sure you tag Dr. B in your your concoctions and make sure that you keep them out of, um, obviously being winter, it's great. But if you are making them in the summertime, um, I think putting them in like a dark pantry or even in like the garage can be really helpful to keep them out of the heat as well. Alrighty, next listener question from Jesse. So Jesse says, Dr. B, you and other experts always say that the number of different plants that you eat directly influences your gut microbiome. Why is it? Is it because that plants are prebiotics themselves or do plants have their own bacterial system? Well, plants do have their own bacterial system. In fact, we literally just touched, it's kind of nice that this question came now because we just touched on this with the sauerkraut. And what's cool is that these bacteria that are already alive and resident on the, on the cabbage leaf and which emerge when we create sauerkraut, if you look um, at the bacteria that, that grow, let me give you one example. There, it's called the lactobacillus plantarum. Lactobacillus plantarum is the dominant bacteria that you will find in fully fermented sauerkraut. Go and check out probiotics. Almost any probiotic, if you look at the label, if it has multiple strains, is going to include lactobacillus plantarum. So it's this magical thing that our food, these plant foods, already contain the microbes living on them. And I do think that that's a relevant part of of our food supply. And this is one of the arguments that would be in favor of eating raw food. But I don't think people should restrict themselves to a raw food diet. I think that cooking your food is perfectly beneficial and in some cases even more healthy there's examples for example uh with tomatoes when you cook tomatoes you release lycopene and lycopene protects us from heart disease um, and protects us from cancer and so the top two killers so but with regard to um gut food with regard to diversity of plants and the microbiome and what is it the number one thing is the fiber That is the number one thing. And again, we need to get away from defining fiber by grams. You know, you can't take some sort of cereal and say that the fiber in that cereal is the same as the fiber in a plant. It's not. You can't take inulin that you you add to some processed food and say that the same is getting the fiber from your plant. So we need to stop worrying about the grams and start thinking about the fact that every single one of these plants is going to have unique types of fiber. And those unique types of fiber will support different types of bacteria that live inside of you. So the more different types of plants that you consume, the more diversity that you will have in your microbiome. And the more diversity that you have in your microbiome, the more capable it is of doing its job 
which is critically important because not only does it help you to digest your food, not only is it involved in your metabolism, which we've talked about, but it also connects to 70% of your immune system. It connects to your brain, connects to 90% of serotonin. Um, so this is critically important for human health and these fiber and the fiber in our food is the part that plays the key role. Wonderfully answered. So next question is from an anonymous, um, and they would like to know once you've been diagnosed with IBS, is there anything that you can do to reverse your IBS or heal it? And if so, what sort of timeline does this generally look like? Well, it really depends on the severity of your symptoms and, you know, what, what was it that triggered the IBS in the first place? Um, how long were you drifting in this direction? So in my mind, as a gastroenterologist, when a person has irritable bowel syndrome, what I'm thinking about is, okay, where did the damage to the gut microbiome come from? Where did it start? What was the moment that we tipped the scale to where there was the manifestation of disease? How long has this been going on for and how severe is it? How intense is it? So the, the, the length of how long this has been going on matters. The longer that you've been dealing with it, the more complicated that it is. The intensity of the symptoms matters. And what are some of the root causes that are behind this? So you know, we talked about antibiotics. We've talked about antibiotics. We've talked about processed food as potentially being damaging to the gut microbiome. Um, but you know, one of, some of the things that we didn't talk about major life stressors. So trauma during childhood, um, actually the, the most severe irritable bowel syndrome is seen in the people that have been the victim of emotional, physical, or sexual abuse. And it's something that is unfortunate because it's not talked about. And most of the time, the, the patient doesn't feel connected enough to their doctor to actually have this conversation because there's a vulnerability that comes with opening up and talking about this. But the worst irritable bowel syndrome that I have dealt with in my career, the ones that I really, really, really struggle to correct, it ultimately comes out that that is the case. Some sort of emotional, physical, or in many cases, sexual abuse during childhood that manifests later in life with, with severe damage to the microbiome and dysbiosis and your bowel syndrome. So the timescale of recovery for some people could be very quick. Some people, they move towards a plant-based diet and they just bounce right back. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, but in my clinic, I'm dealing with many people who have much more intense, severe symptoms. And in some cases, those ones that I'm referring to that are, have been the victim of abuse. So to me, it's about let's control what we can from a lifestyle perspective. Okay. Let's do everything that we can there. Let's fire on all cylinders. Let's get our diet correct. Let's get these different lifestyle elements that you and I have been touching on. Correct. Let's get you hooked up with a counselor to de-stress. Let's have, you know, you doing potentially some meditation. Let's get your sleep right. Let's talk a little bit about intermittent fasting, which you and I can talk about that if you want to. But with my patients, that's something that I definitely do. We have, we have a, an approach that involves intermittent fasting. So let's get all of these little things all pointing in the same direction. Lots of small changes lead to big results. But let's not also pretend that diet and lifestyle is a silver bullet. That would be inappropriate. Every single person on this planet could have the perfect diet and lifestyle 
And we would not be living in utopia where we all live to 250 years old and we're shiny, happy people and everyone is perfect. That's not the way that life would be. There would still be disease on this planet. And that's where there is a role for medicine. Um, you can probably tell Leanne that I am not the world's biggest proponent of grabbing pills and using pills. I am not. But I am a medical doctor and I am pragmatic. There is a place for medication. It saves lives. It cures ailments. And it can seriously help people. It should not be the way that we do it now, which is that we just reach for it immediately and we never try to remove it and we never address the root cause, which is lifestyle. To me, we should always address the root, co the root cause, which is lifestyle. But there is a place for medication. And depending on the severity of the symptoms, the way I see it is this. You do the medicine for the sake of getting yourself to a better place. When you get yourself to the better place, now you are so much more capable of firing on all cylinders with the lifestyle elements that you and I have been talking about. And then when you do that, that's when you really get back your gut health. And that's what allows you in the future, maybe it's weeks, maybe it's months, maybe it's years, but that's what allows you in the future to then strip away that medication because you don't need it anymore. So that's kind of the approach that I think we all need to take. And I love that. And I'm a big believer in modern medicine alongside, um, I guess, holistic lifestyle um, practices as well. I don't think that you need to have one in, like, without the other. I think a lot of times people want to choose one or the other, but I'm sort of a big believer in why can't we have both and why can't they complement each other? Perfect. And the next question from Lucy is, how can we make plant-based foods easier for our babies to digest, particularly via breastfeeding? How to make them better to digest by breastfeeding. Mm. Um, so th this is, this is a cool topic, actually. Um, a couple of things. So mom's diet, even before she becomes pregnant, even before conception, mom's diet is relevant to pregnancy. And the reason why is because mom's diet will form her microbiome and her microbiome will have influence over the development of that child including the development of the taste buds. Your taste buds, your cravings are reflective of your microbiome. They have the ability to communicate and like they don't have power over us, but they have the ability to tell us what they want. And so those cravings that we have are the, are the reflection of our microbiome. And as mom goes through pregnancy, the diet that mom has during pregnancy, again, forms her microbiome and does have an effect on that fetus that's now developing. The child is born, potentially the child passes through the birth canal, comes out of the vagina, and for the first time is inoculated with mom's microbiome when that happens. And this is all really key because mom's diet matters up to that point that the child is born. And what we have found is that children are going to eat much more similar to the way that mom ate during that pregnancy. You can wish, wish, wish for your child to eat fruits and veggies. But if you didn't eat fruits and veggies yourself, then your child's not going to have a taste for that. And so it's really interesting because I, I don't know. Do you, I like broccoli sprouts. All right. I like broccoli sprouts, not because of the way they taste. I actually don't like the way they taste. They're incredibly bitter. But broccoli sprouts, which for the listeners at home is where you literally will take the seeds from broccoli and you will sprout them. It only takes a couple of days to do this. And um, you don't need soil. You don't need to plant the seeds. You just basically add water, you rinse, and um, you do that a couple times a day. And when you sprout broccoli, you form these 
you form these broccoli sprouts that what's fascinating is they have this phytochemical called sulforaphane. Sulforaphane is what is in cruciferous vegetables like broccoli or cabbage or Brussels sprouts that fights cancer. But here's the cool part. Broccoli sprouts, which are very bitter, have up to 100 times more sulforaphane than adult mature broccoli. So in our household, my wife and I are huge fans of trying to eat a little bit of broccoli sprouts on a, on a daily basis. They're very bitter. I embrace the bitter. I embrace the bitter because I know that what I'm getting, the reason why it's bitter is because I'm getting this phytochemical that fights cancer. But what's interesting is my wife was eating broccoli sprouts through pregnancy and before pregnancy. And my son came out and when we started giving him solid food, I mean, I'm not claiming that at five months we gave him broccoli sprouts, but you know, somewhere when he was around a year of age and he was diversifying his diet, he got his hands on some broccoli sprouts because we're eating them all the time and he loved them. And it, it's like, what? My son loved like literally grabbing them by the handful and throwing them into his mouth. And this is like one of the most bitter foods that I could possibly come up with. And he loved them. And it's because my wife was eating them prior to pregnancy. So the diet of mom leading you know, through pregnancy is really important to the taste buds of the child. Now, the breast milk is really an interesting topic because human breast milk, I'm convinced, is the perfect food, it is the perfect food um, for a human child. And what's fascinating is that breast milk contains over 200 of these molecules um, called human milk oligosaccharides or HMOs. We call them HMOs for short. There's over 200 of them. And these HMOs have literally zero nutritional value for the child. Not no calories, no nutritional value. They don't do anything. They go in the mouth and they come out the rear. Except human milk oligosaccharides are prebiotics. So mom has evolved to create breast milk that nurtures the relationship of their child with bacteria. Mom's breast milk evolved to produce something that's purely for the bacteria and not even for the baby. And that goes to show you the power of this relationship and how nature is trying to show us this connection that's so critically important. And when you have a child that consumes breast milk um, routinely, and you know, and we, we touched on this earlier, I think it's really important to restate this, that there are some people who really, really want to breastfeed their children and it doesn't happen. And I don't want you to stress out about this. You can only do your best. Um, and in some cases, there is the opportunity or possibility to have milk from a, um, uh, a milk bank. But the, the key here is that the, um, the breast milk with these human milk oligosaccharides, which support a healthy gut microbiome, the development of a child's microbiome reduces the incidence of food sensitivities. And so now it will not necessarily ramp up the plants, the fruit and vegetable consumption. Okay. But it does reduce the incidence of food sensitivities and can make it easier for that child to eat those foods. So I'm a huge proponent of breastfeeding. I think that that's, you know, you can't always control whether or not you get a C-section. You can't always control whether or not your child needs antibiotics. 
But if you have the ability to breastfeed your child, if you do have control over that, you should maximize that and take full advantage of that and continue to breastfeed your child for as long as you can possibly do it, whatever you feel makes the most sense for your family. So I, so there is this connection between mom's diet prior to delivery and also this connection to human breast milk through these human milk oligosaccharides that are prebiotic and feed the, the gut microbes that can have a big impact on the way that your child eats. And would you say that the influence of the mum's diet whilst breastfeeding, does that influence the amount of prebiotics in the, in the breast milk? Uh, is there much research or studies to do with that? Or is it something that as long as you're breastfeeding, regardless of what you're eating, you're going to be giving those good prebiotics to the baby? So you have successfully stumped me uh, in the sense that I, <laughs> I don't know the answer to that question on whether or not it affects the HMOs and the prebiotics directly. But what we know is this, right? Which is, which is that human breast milk is um, in part reflective of the nutrients that mom puts into her diet. And so when you are maximizing plant-based diversity, then you are increasing the um, nutrient density in your diet, in your diet. And it is a more nutritionally complete diet as a result of that. And therefore, the expectation is that the breast milk would be, in other words, more nutritious and valuable to the child. Now, that's not to discard the breast milk that comes from a person who eats the standard you know, Western diet. That's still healthy food. You wouldn't discard that. You would still continue to consume that. But it's just to say that I think that mom's diet does matter. And I agree. And that's just for general health in general, regardless of if you're breastfeeding or if you've got different conditions or for your gut health. I think diet for everybody matters um, from a general health perspective. Totally. All right. Next listener question is from Brad. So Brad wants to know, besides plants, what other things can we do to improve our gut health if we're generally, if we're generally pretty healthy gym goers? Well, being a gym goer, so we've talked. So we've talked about a lot of these things, right? So we've talked about prebiotics, we've talked about probiotics, and sort of the hierarchy that exists there. We've talked about some of the lifestyle measures. We talked about the importance of sleep. We talked about uh, the importance of meditation or time for self and to de-stress. So let's talk. What we have not talked about really in great detail. We have we've alluded to the fact that exercise is important, but we have not been a little more detailed than that. So let me say this. I think this is really cool. There are studies looking in both animal models and also in human adults. Um, particularly, they looked at the Irish rugby team, which I think is kind of cool that that's who they studied. And they, what they found when they studied both in the animal model and in human studies is that exercise causes a change in the gut microbes. So literally, exercise will change your gut microbiome. And what you see in terms of the change validates a lot of the conversation that you and I have had both in the first episode and here tonight in the second one, which is that you see more of the microbes that produce short chain fatty acids. So exercise increases the microbes that produce short chain fatty acids. What that means is that when you consume that meal that has fiber, you get even more short-chain fatty acids out of that. The person who consumes more of a plant-based diet gets even more of the benefit. But the person who's not really consuming a plant-based diet, at least by exercising, they will get more from what limited amounts of fiber they do consume. And that's where a lot of the health benefits of exercise actually come from. So that's one thing that could definitely be 
done as a gym goer. The other thing that we haven't really touched on is, is fasting. And when I say fasting, what I'm really referring to here is not so much um, intermittent fasting. Cause to me, intermittent fasting really means intermittent. That means that like most days you're not doing this, but then like once in a while, you're going to say, okay, boom, I'm going to fast, you know, all day today. I'm not going to eat. What I'm talking about is a lifestyle and uh, specifically a lifestyle that I would call time restricted eating. And this, this is an entirely simple concept, which is to say two parts. Number one, it's the acknowledgement that it's good to rest your gut. And it is, it is good to rest your gut It is good to give your gut a break and allow it to heal. It's amazing what the body is capable of doing when we get out of the way and allow it to just heal itself. And that's what fasting is about to some degree. Now, let me say that the benefits of fasting, which do include weight loss, improvements of the gut microbiome, uh, protection from type 2 diabetes, reduced cholesterol, these benefits that I'm talking about from time-restricted eating, the people who need it the most are the ones who are pounding their gut with processed food, right? Because they're destroying their gut all day with their terrible diet. And they can only do better by not putting that food down the hatch. So fasting really helps those people. Do you benefit from fasting if you eat a predominantly plant-based diet? If you are, you know, basically moving towards this goal that you and I are talking about, which is plants in abundance, diversity of plants. Yes, I still think that there is a place for this. But let's not let the hype get carried away here because it has become very, very trendy. And let's not do this to such an extreme that we, we're actually hurting ourselves. Some people push it too far. I don't think, you know, I think you're better off putting your energy into other things than just to be a one trick pony and being kind of crazy about fasting. So, but when it comes to time restricted eating, there's two parts. Number one is giving your gut a break. The second part, which is wildly unappreciated and critically important in my opinion, not enough people talking about this. Everyone's talking about how many hours, but what about the timing? What about the timing? Our circadian rhythm matters a lot, okay? All life on earth, all life, whether it's a human or an animal or a plant, has a biorhythm. All life on earth has a biorhythm. And so what about the life inside of us, the microbes? Guess what? They have a biorhythm too. If I jump on a plane and I fly to Australia, I am going to be jet lagged. Why am I jet lagged? Because by throwing off my body's natural rhythm, I've actually really messed my microbes up. And it's, it's the gut microbiome that actually is trying to reset itself when we feel that jet lag, which kind of feels like a, a hangover, right? So, um, so the key here is the timing. And what you want is you want to tap into circadian biology. And here's the key. It's really very simple. It's really very simple. It's not just, hey, take 12 hours off, right? If you eat dinner at 11 p.m. and then you take 12 hours off and you don't eat until 11 a.m. the next day, that's a really weird, whacked out time schedule. What you need to do is you need to have an early dinner. It's very simple. Have an early dinner and make a hard rule that you are not going to have anything to eat once you're done eating. If you want to have dessert, that's your choice. But finish up, 
And then it's water until bedtime. That's it. Water until bedtime. No nighttime snacks, even if your body is telling you that you want to do that. And when you wake up the following morning, it will have been 12 hours since you last ate. And if you wait just a little bit, like an hour, it'll be 14 hours. And that to me is a very healthy amount of time-restricted eating. 12 to 14 hours of fasting, followed by you know anywhere from 10 to 12 hours of consuming food. That to me is very healthy, but the key part also is tapping into the circadian biology. And I love that you address that as well, because as you mentioned, intermittent fasting is very popular. It's very trendy. And again, I feel like people just use it as like a one trick pony. They just think if I do this, I'm going to automatically be healthy. But I like to think about intermittent fasting and I use it with my clients as more of just another tool in my toolbox. It's just something else that can give us that little extra edge, but it's not the be all to end all. It's just, you know, you've got to get the basics right first. You've got to have a great diet and lots of plants diversity you got to manage your stress levels you got to have adequate sleep get your hydration right and then there's a, there are a whole host of other things that we can you know try to improve our lifestyles as well and and as you mentioned just 12 to 14 hours can be a lot more manageable for some people that obsess about that 16 hour time frame or you know I've seen a lot of people talking about even longer like full day fasting where that could even potentially stress somebody out even more just from focusing so much on the timing rather than just doing it from a a pure gut rest perspective and then when you feel hungry again in the morning that's when you should eat again rather than a set right or wrong. Oh, totally. Yeah. No, it's when you're pushing yourself that hard, then you're, then I think that you're kind of taking it too far. And I totally agree with you when you're going for 16 or 18 hours, you're kind of pushing it a little bit too far. And there's this hierarchy, just like we talked about, there's a hierarchy lifestyle first, prebiotics second, probiotics third. And when we're talking about these lifestyle factors, you know, you talked about, so managing your stress, you talked about sleep and, and now we're talking about intermittent fasting. And if I take those three, there's a hierarchy to those three too, from my perspective. I mean, I really feel like it's such a little hanging fruit to get a good night's rest. It does so much for the body, including the gut. And I would put that number one. And I would put managing your stress as being clearly more important than intermittent fasting. So if you're, you know, have this stress situation and you're not sleeping, doing intermittent fasting is not going to do you that much good. It's just not. Get a good night's rest. You will feel so much better. Thank you, Dr. B, for keeping it so real with us. Absolutely love it. So our final question is from Matt. So Matt said, hey, mate, is dairy good or bad for your gut health? Yeah. Um, so there's, there is debate that I've seen out there when it comes to this topic. And I, I'll break it down the way that I feel about it and um, try to be as honest with it as I possibly can, which is that, you know, I, I'm sitting here and I'm telling you that diversity is critical to gut health. And that generally speaking, when you increase diversity, you are increasing the health of the microbiome. And when you reduce diversity, you are making the microbiome less healthy. And when we look at the dairy studies, which again, I think that we all need to be very fair and acknowledge that the dairy studies are funded by the dairy industry. So they need to be taken with a grain of salt. Um, When you look at the dairy studies, you do see that there is enrichment of the microbiome through the consumption of many different dairy products such as a fermented yogurt or a fermented kefir, you, you will see an enrichment of the microbiome. And here's what I come to. So I struggle with this because we have this general rule, right? But this is a very general, broad rule. And it's not meant to be the end-all, be-all where you 
adhere yourself to this one rule. And that leads to you oversimplifying complex topics. This is a complex topic. And if the dairy is giving us microbes that it enriches, but they are unhealthy microbes, if they are inflammatory microbes, I don't know that we want that. And I come back to this study that we mentioned in episode one, which was the nature study by Dr. Lawrence David published in 2014, where they have five days of an animal product-based diet. It's meat, cheese, dairy, and eggs. And basically what you see is you see enrichment of inflammatory bacteria that occur with that particular diet. And we have studies looking at saturated fat from dairy in an animal model causing dysbiosis. We have studies, you know, it's kind of as clear of a study as we've had in the demonstration of the model of dysbiosis was a study in an animal model looking at what happens when you give milk fat. So the saturated fat to me appears to cause dysbiosis. There are some other reasons that to me, I'm not a huge fan of dairy, for example, it's association with prostate cancer. And so for me personally, I choose not to. I don't view the benefits as outweighing the risks. I would not sit here and say that the data are as clean and clear cut as they are for, say, processed meat, where it's been labeled as a carcinogen, or as clean and clear cut as, say, they are for red meat, which has been clearly associated with colon cancer and heart disease and increased risk of something called TMAO, which is associated with coronary artery disease. But for me, I don't, I don't view it as a health promoting food. Now, if you are someone who likes dairy, I think that to consume dairy in moderation, like I wouldn't be drinking milk, milk instead of water with every single meal, right? I wouldn't actively seek out cheese personally. I wouldn't actively seek out these foods, trying to get more of them into your diet. But if you're someone who likes them, I, this is not about perfection. This is about progress. And this is about accepting the fact that it's okay for you to eat foods that are not perfectly healthy at times because you enjoy them. And that, so that's the way that I feel about it. I mean, you know, I think sometimes people feel when they hear me talk that I have the perfect diet. I don't, you know, I, there's candy that I like. There's, I, I don't consume dairy-based ice cream, but I get this. I don't know if you guys have this in Australia. Do you guys have Natamu? Do you guys have that brand, Natamu? Oh, no, I don't, I don't think so. Okay. So there's this US brand. I think I don't think it's moved into the Australian market, but it's called Natamu. And it's, it's dairy-free ice cream. It, it tastes exactly the same. It tastes exactly the same, but you literally can't tell. And I love it. And it's delicious. And I can eat an entire tub of it by myself in one sitting if I'm watching a basketball game. And so that is not a healthy food just because it's dairy free. It's not, that's a highly processed food. It's not good for you. The point from my perspective is that we need to maximize. We need to focus on where the health comes from. That's what's worked for me. Focus on those diversity of plants, emphasize that in your diet, work on progress, increasing that, getting more of that in your diet. To me, minimizing processed food to the best of your ability as much as you possibly can. And I just think that we can all agree. I, I would hope that we can all agree that in the countries, ours and yours, Australia and the United States, 
that consume more meat than any other country in the entire world, that there is room for us to taper down. And what that looks like is your personal choice. I choose not to, but there are people who will choose to, and that's okay as far as I'm concerned when what we're really trying to do is to max out this fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, and nuts to the best of your ability. And again, like the blue zones, and we talked about the blue zones a little bit. They are not 100% plant-based. They are 90%. There are some people in the blue zones that are 100%. But I think the point is you need to choose where that, where you put that marker. I would argue that we should all strive to be at least 90% plant-based. And some of us are going to get to 90% and there is no reason to stop there. And we're going to keep going higher than that. And those are our choices. I think there should be some wiggle room for each one of us though, to also make choices and to say, look, this is what I like, and this is what I want to eat. And so I'm going to have a little bit of that. I'm just not going to have it with every meal. It's just not going to be a dominant part of my diet, but I'm going to have some of that. Wonderful. And I think that's a great response that you're not um, completely against it, but you're not, um, you know, completely pro it either. You're not sort of sitting just in one um, one sort of corner. It's sort of up to the individual if that's something that you really like and if that's a part of your lifestyle that you really don't want to give up, you don't have to. But I think then when you make room for this abundance of plant-based foods in your diet, you automatically reduce your consumption of things like meat um, and that sort of thing automatically without even really, I guess, trying to or meaning to because plants are so filling and they're so satiating that you don't have too much time for a huge chunk of steak if you've got a massive plant-based meal in front of you. Yeah. And I think, and just to be, just to be totally clear, Leanne, in case, and just in case I was not, I, I don't think dairy is healthy. I mean, I don't, I, I, I think to me, the weight of the data suggests that it's unhealthy. I don't think the weight of the data is quite on par with processed meats or some processed foods. But I, I would. I, it's not that I'm not sure which direction it goes. I'm very confident that this is the direction that it goes. But to me, this is about trying to create an atmosphere where people can accomplish change and actually be successful. And if if changing our diet, if I sit here and stand on a soapbox and say, "Eat this, not that," and if you don't, you're a terrible person, where are we going to go? We're not going to get anywhere. All right. What I want is I want all of us to be empowered with health information where what worked for me, you can look at your dietary choices and you can say, you know what? I choose that. And I choose that because it, it, it rewards me with health and I deserve that. And guess what? You're going to learn to enjoy. If you don't think that you like those flavors, I can promise you, you will learn to love those flavors. Your taste buds will adapt as your microbiome changes. But I I just really feel like this is about empowering people to make dietary choices that bring health back into their life and recognizing that the true health is in the path that involves maximizing plant-based diversity. And there's this other stuff that exists. And if you choose to have some of that, that's okay because none of us are perfect and we shouldn't try to be perfect, but that really we should all be on the same path together, which is maximizing plant-based diversity. Wonderful. And I love that message of that progress over perfection because that perfection with our diet is what too often leads people to just fail and give up altogether. So just making that slow progress over time and the more you progress with a more plant-based diet, the better you feel and the the easier that it gets over time rather than just trying to overhaul everything altogether. I agree 100%. And that's that's the way it usually works is that with time, you really start to feel the benefit and your body adapts to what you're doing. 
Wonderful. All right. And finally, Dr. B, I'd love if you could leave our listeners with your top three suggestions um, to improve their gut health and nourish their body. So this might be somebody who has some gut conditions at the moment, or it might be somebody who is completely well and healthy, just looking for that little extra edge. So if you had three take-home messages for our listeners in terms of improving their gut health and nourishing their bodies long-term, what would your top three takeaways be? Well, I feel like we have really sort of pounded on a lot of these great concepts. Um, so for me, I can't I can't walk away from this episode. If you're going to ask me to give my top three, I know we've been talking about this for two episodes straight, but it's plants in abundance. You have to start there because that that's what the studies support. The studies make it very clear that the number one predictor of a healthy gut microbiome was the diversity of plants in your diet. So I really want to empower people just as you have Leanne with, with your um, Instagram feed to, to re to bring back abundance into their diet and to stop restricting their diet and really emphasize plant-based diversity. When you make that salad and you have choices, choose to add more varieties, even if it's in moderation for certain ones that maybe you're more sensitive to. So that's the first thing. Um, in terms of uh, two other additional things, you know, I, I feel like there's this little hanging fruit that's so simple for us. I feel like there's this little hanging fruit. And so I really feel like it's important for us to break free from the standard lifestyle that many people are leading these days and just get back to the simplicity of having a good night's rest, connecting with other human beings not spending too much time on our phones or our tablets or our computers, not spending too much time watching television, spending a little bit more time with a book, spend some time outside. Um, and the third thing is we have not really touched on this. So I have to give you something fresh before we wrap up um, hobbies. So there are hobbies that potentially could provide benefit. Um, we know that people who um, garden there are a number of different health benefits that come from literally gardening. And so, and that's something that the connection that you have both with the plants and also with the soil is potentially beneficial um, to, uh, to your health broadly and also potentially to your microbiome. And then the other thing in the, in the arena of hobbies is have a pet. So having a cat or a dog around the house, they have their own microbiome. And guess what? They, just like all of your housemates, everyone that you live with, you're all sharing your microbes together. You all, you all gain from being around, from being around each other and having that pet around is to the entire family's benefit. So I do think that's something else that I would think about. Wonderful. So even the microbiomes of your pets can sort of help diversify your own microbiome. Is that correct? Yeah, believe it or not. Oh yeah, totally. So believe it or not, people who have pets at home, and raise their children, their children are less likely to have allergic diseases as a result of there being a dog or a cat in the household. Wow. You are you are full of amazing wisdom, nuggets of wisdom, <laughs> for lack of a better word. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dr. B, for joining us. Um, just finally, where can everybody get in touch with you? I know we talked about your amazing book on the last episode. Do you have a website that people could potentially reach out and get in, in touch with you there? Um, I, I do have a website that you could sign up for my email list. And so it's going to change, but you'll know when it changes. So right now you can come and find me at the guthealthmd.com. And that's also my handle. If you are on Instagram, I I predominantly do Instagram, but I do also do some Facebook stuff. 
So you can find me on Instagram or on Facebook as the gut health MD, and you can come to my website, thegutthealthmd.com and sign up for my newsletter. And that allows us to really connect. And, you know, just like you, I put a lot of content out there for free and, and why I put that content out there for free is it goes back to really what we first started talking about in the first episode, which is that I want to put stuff out there that's reliable, that people can trust. And we want, I want to um, help shape the conversation about gut health and get us away from the stuff that's, I mean, really not scientifically based and kind of, I don't know what you're talking about, you know, rolling my eyes, if you will, and get us back to let the science do the talking and we can follow, you know, where the science is taking us, which is so exciting and really can have benefits for our health. Amazing. So you heard it here, guys. Go and follow Dr. B at The Gut Health MD. Go give him a follow on Instagram. Go sign up to his email list on his website. And thank you so much once again for joining us. And we would absolutely love to have you back on a future episode. Um, I'm sure that after this one, I'm going to get so many more questions for you. So if you guys do have any more questions for Dr. B, um, I'm sure he'd love if you sent him a message or um, an email as well. Um, Or if you're in America, you could potentially go and visit him. He still does consulting in his clinic. That'd be absolutely great and thank you so much for having me on it's been a real pleasure and um i definitely definitely would love to stay in touch and and definitely do another podcast episode at some point we'll just figure that out amazing well thank you guys so much for listening today i'm sure that everybody has gained so many pearls of wisdom just like i have as well and if you love this episode don't forget to um give us a rating or a review in itunes and we will catch you in the next one